You're listening to Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of theology with all of our meaning-making endeavors. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner. Thanks for listening. Today's episode, we're diving into part one of what's going to be a, a long series, exploring issues related to faith, science, the Bible, evolution, creationism, and all of that fun stuff. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, welcome to Deep Talks, uh, a podcast that explores theology and meaning making. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner, and I want to thank you, all of you that reached out to me during the first series and provide such valuable feedback on the, the stuff that you were learning in the first series and uh, offered some just great insights, your own perspectives in the subject matter, and that stuff really excites me. That's what this is all about. Admittedly, the first series where I was exploring some of the, the theology, or at least the theological implications of Jordan Peterson's message was admittedly a pretty, maybe a niche topic, right? Um, you know, you probably only had interest in it if you had some sort of prior experience or curiosity with um, Dr. Jordan Peterson, the the psychologist. So uh, I think hopefully the next few series that I'm going to be exploring might have some broader appeal to many of you who perhaps like myself have grown up in the church. Uh, you've grown up maybe in evangelicalism, and you've wrestled with certain kinds of questions, certain theological questions, questions that you go, I just, I just can't make sense of this, or it's really perturbed me. And there's a, there's a good list of them out there available for anybody that's uh, trying to be honest about, about their faith, about Christian theology, about, about the Bible. Um, but I'm also hopeful that this podcast would actually be uh, inviting to those of you that are maybe uh, don't consider yourself to be particularly religious, but you're just curious and you're one of those people that just uh, wants to be informed that this would be an opportunity for you to gain a perspective that uh, hopefully transcends some of the, the bad caricatures out there of what it, what like uh, Christian theology is all about. So in the last week, I did some put out some feelers to people on social media, on Twitter and Facebook, and asked them to give me feedback on what's what's some of the stuff that uh, they are wrestling with or think are important questions to address um, and to to deal with uh, theologically. And uh, in doing that, I, I, did, I got a lot of feedback on something that I'm, I'm really excited to start a series about today. It's something that in my own experience had, had create, uh, created quite a bit of cognitive dissonance growing up. And uh, so this next series, we're going to be exploring theology and science, issues that relate to uh, reading the Bible and having it dialogue with science, and in particular, creation and evolution and all of that fun stuff. So uh, I'm not going to make any promises like I did in the first uh, series about how long this series will go. Uh, it could take quite some time because I think it's such an important subject matter or we might be able to get it done in a few parts. But today in uh, the first part, we're really going to explore, um, explore how and why 
uh, we use the Bible to derive answers to life's hard questions. Why do we do that? How should we do that? What's the right way and what's the wrong way of using the Bible as a tool to help us understand reality and understand God? Before we do a, a kind of a, a deep dive into the theology in uh, today's topic and subject matter, I want to tell you a little bit about my own story as it relates to this subject of uh, faith and science, the, 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 the Bible and science, theology and science, however you want to you wanna label it to help you understand a little bit of where I've, I've come from. So um, my own story is that I, I grew up in a uh, conservative ev- evangelical um, context. Um, you know, my, my parents are first generation evangelicals. I, I went to a uh, very conservative evangelical Christian school from kindergarten all the way through uh, the end of high school. Uh, I spent all my life in uh, conservative evangelical churches. And my experience growing up, and this is, this is um, and there's not any particular people that I am uh, pointing any fingers at or saying they did a, a bad job, but this was, uh, my experience was uh, symbolic of a, uh, a probably a pretty normal, typical experience for someone that grew up in uh, ev- those sorts of evangelical institutions in the 80s and 90s, in the middle of the culture war stuff, which hasn't died down yet. And um, so I think my story is uh, pretty typical of, all, of, of a lot of people that have grown up in uh, evangelical Christian context. So I was raised in a uh, young earth creationist only background. And so, um, you know, there might be certain Christian institutions that have a certain degree of openness to maybe multiple perspectives on how to understand, in particular, this, the subject of, of, of creation and human origins and the material origins of the planet and the universe. They might have a certain degree of openness where they allow, whether that's in a uh, university, a Christian university, or a Christian school, where they might allow for multiple perspectives, which include, you know, young earth creationism, which is the view that the... um, that the earth is r- roughly anywhere between six to 10,000 years old and um, that there was a worldwide flood and uh, all of the um, perhaps odd geological issues uh, or formations that you see across the, the world, such as the Grand Canyon, um, the, the, you know, the kind of the stratified um, uh, sedimentary layers that in geology people use to date the earth, etc., etc. Those can be attributed to the flood. And the young earth perspective has a uh, very literal reading of Genesis 1. And I want to give a little disclaimer to when I say literal reading of Genesis 1. What I mean by that, and what uh, in my context growing up people meant by that, was I will open up my English translation of the Bible, I will read it, and I will associate the words on that page with 
my own understandings of what these words so happen to mean. And what it means to me is what it means. That's really what, when people say literal uh, in that sort of context, I've discovered that that's what they mean. It's a, a plain reading of of scripture. So that's one perspective. Um, maybe there might be room, some Christian institutions may have room for multiple other perspectives, such as um, old earth theories, which, and there's several variations of this we, we could explore, some including gap theory, where, again, people are in many ways still treating the text of Genesis 1 in a way that is, um, I don't really mean to be pejorative here, but this is really the best term that I can use, a very flat reading of Genesis 1, where again, I as the reader am going to interpret the words on the page by associating them with my own understandings of what these words mean based in my own understanding of how language works in my context in the 20th or 21st century. And um, sometimes for there might be those that still go, well, I, I, I look at that, I read that, and I'm trying to make sense of the world, and in particular what appears to be the overwhelming um, geological uh, evidence that the earth and the universe itself is very, very old. And so some old earthers will postulate something called the gap theory, right? That there is a uh, unknown gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Um, some espouse to something that, that still falls under maybe this umbrella term of old earth creationism, where uh, it's, it's called uh, you know progressive creationism. And they might have things like day-age theories. I'm sure if, you know, some of you, if you're watching or listening to this podcast and you've got no evangelical background and, and maybe you grew up like in a high church tradition where a lot of this stuff isn't, um, you know, the, they, they don't really get, um, have much debate about young earth versus older stuff. Or maybe you're coming from uh, outside faith tradition you're like this seems really really odd and unfamiliar i you know this is this is real dialogues people are having in especially in american evangelicalism anyways i'm sorry back to progressive creationism um you know maybe many of you have heard of different day-aged theories right where they'll read genesis 1 and then there will be some sort of interesting math equation where you know though it says and on the first day god did this that that word day because a day is as a thousand years to god that we're talking about you know each day equaling thousands of years or some unknown period of time um and so the earth is really really old but i'm, I'm still trying to though i'm changing maybe the meaning of day and sort of an english understanding as I read Genesis 1 into something that means more than a 24-hour period. Nonetheless, I'm still trying to understand this text in a way that I can call a plain reading, right? A plain reading. I just open it up. You know, I don't have to do any background study into the context or ancient Near Eastern um, cosmology or other creation myths at the time. I can just read it and I think I can understand it. So you have those two camps, and then you have, um, you've got young earth, old earth, and then you have a third camp, which um, 
for me growing up, uh, I'd probably, first of all, I'd only probably come to have heard of the possibility that there were other Christians out there that believed in something like old earth theories um, when I was in college. And uh, that's because I took a geology class in my sophomore year of college. And uh, I was sitting in this geology class and this professor who is not unlike maybe some presentations of um, professors at secular universities in movies like God's Not Dead. Uh, he was not out to destroy anyone's faith. Uh, he did not have a, what appeared to be me to be any sort of, you know, um, conspiracy to... Uh, you know, get, get people to uh, to disavow their 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 Christian faith or to stop reading the Bible. But the the information that he was presenting on uh, the various ice ages and geological formations, and again, I'm admittedly I'm not a science guy, so I'm approaching this subject matter from a theological background, which is what I have. But as he was sharing this information, I was like, wow, that really makes a lot of sense. But I can't believe that. Because to believe that, to believe that, um, you know, there was an ice age, that doesn't fit with the, the biblical narrative that I've learned. And so it created some cognitive dissonance. And then as I started to explore, I found out, oh, yeah, there's actually other Christians out there that read Genesis 1 and they understand it differently. So maybe I've misunderstood it. And that for me started a journey, but uh, at that point in the journey, I, um, I had come to maybe go and be like, well, both of these are viable options, but the one option that can never be viable is evolution, or, you know, we often like to talk about it in conservative evangelical settings as macro uh, evolution to distinguish between minor changes and the actual changes of, of species, into new species, which, you know, uh, this is, this is even problematic, uh, evidently for scientists to find some sort of what's the hard line between uh, this species and uh, another one. Again, that's uh, more of a scientific uh, issue related to science. But I grew up, uh, boy, in I think back even to like my middle school Bible classes uh, growing up, we would, we would watch um, Ken Ham videos down the guy that uh, is the director of the creation science museum and debates between creationists and evolutionists and what was taught to me um in the christian institutions that i, I grew up in was that um to uh, there were there were two sides there was a war going on a war between secular atheistic science and christian science so there was like two different kinds of sciences and what we needed to do was we needed to be prepared to defend our faith so that we, when we headed out from our Christian bubble into the world, the rest of the world, that we'd be able to defend Christian science, not the, not like Christian science monitor, not, but um, science in a Christian perspective uh, up against secular science, which had really... Uh, been taught to us that there was like a global conspiracy uh, among academic scientists and people in mainstream science that were really trying to destroy the Christian faith by presenting this theory of evolution. 
And so I went off to college, like equipped and prepared. And I even, boy, I look back on that. I even had written, written papers about, you know, uh, you know, attacking Charles Darwin and his, uh, his, his evolutionary theory and, you know, standing up to professors in class, trying to defend a young earth. Cause I really thought I was, I was doing something noble. I thought I was defending not only my faith, but what ultimately it came down to, what was communicated to me. Um, and again, this is nobody's fault. This is really, there's not any one particular person here who's who's to blame. This is really just part of what was the culture of evangelical conservatism, conservative evangelicalism, I should say. Um, and, and part of that culture, again, was this message that you can either take God at his word or you can trust in the faulty reasoning of human beings. And in particular, um, again, I'll use you know kind of the conservative evangelical terminology of the time. You'd be trusting unsaved, lost uh, scientists out there who who are still like dead in their sins, and they you know because of that, their reason can't even be trusted up against the unchanging uh, truth of God's word. So in future episodes, I'm going to come back around to that particular problem and, and explore why that that it's a false dichotomy to pit reason uh, or general revelation uh, against special revelation to pit reason uh, against the the special revelation of the scriptures. I'm going to explore that in another podcast because today what I want to do is really just take you through the journey that I've gone through, which um, didn't actually begin by trying to sort out uh, how reason and revelation work together if they're against each other. For me, this process of having uh, maybe a change of opinion, a broadening of perspective on this subject matter came from a theological journey. It came from a journey that started actually with uh, the scriptures. While I had experienced some cognitive dissonance in college, I had only taken one science class. And part of the reason why I only took one science course in college was because of my my upbringing. Um, I, would, I, I went into college going attending a secular university uh, at the University of Michigan. I, I was very suspicious of uh, science and professors that would be teaching science at public universities. In fact, I was, I was kind of taught to do that and was trained to defend my faith in apologetics classes to defend what I was thought was defending my faith, but I was defending this sort of a young earth view um, against the, um, you know, the evils of secular science. So I just decided, boy, I don't want to sit in a bunch of those classes because you know, I remember I'd get questions. There'd be questions like this in my Bible classes and youth group coming up of, boy, if you go to 
uh, a public university and you're sitting in a biology class and you have to take a test and they they ask you a question about did humans come from monkeys and you have to say true or false that you're going to be faced with the choice to either stand up for the truth or you're going to have to lie on that just so you can pass and so part of me that that conception i had was like forget all of that i, I don't i don't want to take science classes at all and so I, I only took one, and it was what uh, just the prerequisite, one prerequisite science class that I needed. And in that science class, I, I was, again, I was introduced to ideas, ideas that I hadn't been introduced to about uh, ice ages and uh, how, to, how to date rocks. And, uh, you know, again, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to do a really good job of explaining all the things that I had, I had uh, learned back at that time. But the professor was not, uh, you know, he actually professed to be, a, a, you know, a, a person that shared religious faith. And he um, wasn't out to, like, destroy anybody's worldviews. And what he was presenting made a, a lot of a lot of sense. But I ultimately just kind of put that on the shelf. I think I'd become fine with the, the idea of, like, gap theory. In particular, that, oh, yeah, you know, God could have said, let there be light. You know, the, the physical universe could have been created. And then, like, Genesis 1 and then 2 and 3 are taking us back to when God made life on earth. So, I kind of tabled it. And uh, it actually really was a theological journey for me that showed me I actually, um, I actually have some things wrong about the scriptures. And so my journey wasn't about trying to be uh, someone that had to, to fit in for work in the, in the sciences as a scientist or a teacher of science. Actually, for me, what started the journey was after I graduated and I, you know, I started teaching Bible classes and started diving into theology and trying to understand the scriptures and in particular went on a journey that I hadn't done before with no real formal biblical training, uh, a journey into biblical hermeneutics. And that is simply a, a fancy term to describe the art and science of reading the Bible. And everybody inherently believes those that treat the Bible as authoritative in their lives and, and use words like inspired or infallible, anybody that has high regard for the Bible knows there are right and wrong ways to read the Bible. Uh, I'll, I'll cite a, a few examples, right? Uh, let's say this Sunday morning as you're walking into church, uh, you notice that the worship leader has, uh, you know, venomous snakes coiled around his arms and is dancing with snakes, and you walk up to him and you go, "Hey, you know, worship leader, uh, why are you doing this?" And he says, "Well, Mark 16, verse 18 says they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well." And you go, "Man, I, yeah, it says that in the Bible, and I see that you're reading that, and I know that you're interpreting that as a promise from God." towards all believers at all times that they will be able to handle snakes and it won't hurt them. And now you're handling a snake, but I think you're reading that wrong. 
you know, another great example, there was a revivalist in the, in the 20th century who, uh, you know, had tent revivals and was, was really growing in his popularity for these really what appeared to be incredible displays and power of God on display in these, in these tent revival meetings. And late in his ministry, late in his ministry career, he thought he had a uh, real insight into uh, Genesis 2 and 3 and uh, really believed that God had revealed to him as he was reading the real meaning behind uh, what happened in the Garden of Eden. And he came up with this wild theory called the serpent seed theory, where he actually proposed that Eve had had, you know, intercourse with the serpent in the garden. Now, as I say that and you hear that, you go, what would... I mean, what was he doing? What was he thinking? That's clearly not a right way of reading the Bible, just like the snake handlers. And so uh, what's the problem? The problem isn't that neither one of those people, and we do, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with this. There are actually legitimately snake handling churches, in particular in the American South. And there are all sorts of wild doctrines that come from people that don't have a low view of Scripture, in fact, they would say that they're treating the Bible as the word of God. And even, you know, in the case of the snake handlers, they, they might think that they're treating it more seriously than you are and reading it more literally than you are. So let's just explore for a minute. If you go, yeah, I think the inspiration of the scriptures means the, the inspiration is found when I read the Bible. And so you get together and you circle up a uh, hundred people and you give them a passage. You give them that, you know, that Mark 16 passage that we just went to and we were talking about with the snake handlers. And, and you ask everybody, everybody, I want you to read this passage of scripture and I want you to tell me what it means and you get a hundred people together and let's say you get a hundred different meanings, people walking away saying, I think the meaning is this. I think the meaning is this. And of those a hundred meanings, you have many of them, which are contradictory, meaning they, they, they are logically inconsistent. They both, both uh, person A and person B says the text means this text means this. And they're so contradictory that they both can't be true. There's an obvious problem here, right? The problem is that if meaning and the inspiration is located in my reading of the text, if my questions are inspired, then, then the Bible becomes, uh, it's me. The Bible effectively becomes meaningless because I can derive any meaning that I want. You can derive any meaning that you want. And what that, creates is a functional problem that we can never actually get together on a Sunday morning or for any Bible study on a Tuesday night and go, how is this? How is God's inspired word intended to direct us? And what ends up happening is if the location of the inspiration, the location of meaning is found in my questions, and then it could be also in your questions, then the Bible becomes nothing, uh, nothing more than a mirror by which we see ourselves and we can reflect. And the inspiration, the location of inspiration is not actually found in God's word, but it's actually found in us. So obviously, that's a significant problem. What's our other options, though, for locating where the inspiration, where the inspired message, the inspired communication of God can be found? in the text. So if it's not in my questions, 
where's the best place to find it? I know ultimately most people will say, well, it, the, the inspiration is what's true is in God and he gave it to us in the text. So now we need to start thinking about if the source if the source of meaning, if the source of inspiration comes from God, let's start tracing, actually tracing the process by which the scriptures, if we believe as I do that they are inspired and they 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 are they find their origin in God's inspired purpose, um, let's start tracing how the scriptures came to be and how they sit in your lap in a book or on a you know on a smartphone, right? Um, Let's 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 trace that. So the inspiration, if it's located in God, who is the fountainhead of all truth, there's no lie, no falsehood that can be found in him. Did God just take his massive God pen from heaven and write in a scroll? Well, no, that's not how I think anybody believes or rightly acknowledges that the scriptures came to be. There was a process there. And part of that process was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on human authors. And so those human authors were inspired by God. And, and we could have a whole other subject, a whole other podcast on um, maybe the different meanings people have when they think about inspired. But the inspiration of God came upon the biblical authors to write and communicate. Now, who were they communicating to? When were they communicating? And what kind of shape does their language take as they communicate? This is really, really important too, because we don't, again, want to make the inspiration of scriptures, the location of that inspiration in our questions. So if from God, the inspiration of the spirit fills human authors, and those authors start comprising things like stories, narratives, poetry. They comprise letters, um, you know, all apocalyptic literature like the, the book of Revelation. Are those authors writing in uh, the year 2018 in the United States of America in the Midwest or the East Coast or the West Coast? Obviously not. Are they writing in English, no. So when God's inspiration is endowed upon them by the power of the Spirit and they begin to write and they write their intended communication, they're going to be using the framework of their culture, of their worldview, of their language, and of their time. So it would be really, really, really a stretch, right? I, you see this all the time. This is classic, like ancient aliens, right? You know, people talk about Ezekiel's wheels, right? And was Ezekiel, like in all the crazy conspiracy stuff out there, you know, was Ezekiel's wheels in the book of Ezekiel, the prophetic vision that he had, was, was Ezekiel claiming that he saw flying saucers and UFOs? No, obviously not. There was no frame of reference in that day and in that era uh, for anything like UFOs. Um, this clearly cannot be what Ezekiel was intending to communicate. And so where we're trying to understand the location then of 
the inspiration travels from God. God gives the inspired meaning. The location then is vested in human authors. And those human authors that God has invested and endowed with inspiration, they are writing within their particular culture and their particular context. And it's important to note, as we think about this process, that they are writing to particular peoples at their time. Now, this doesn't eliminate the possibility that people later in history can come along and read these stories. They can read these letters, these inspired communications to the people of that day, and that they couldn't in future generations derive meaning from it. But the difficulty is, whose meaning are we trying to get at? And if we're trying to get at God, we need God's intended meaning. We need to trace that back through the mediums of his inspired communication. This is central. This is like 101 for biblical reading, guys, because what this does is we can get, we can actually get people together in a room. We can get 100 people together in the room and we can teach them about, let's say, in the book of Genesis, we can teach them about the culture in which the author of Genesis comprised uh, the, the, the Genesis narrative, the book of Genesis, and most likely the authors, and, and that's <laughs> textual criticism would be a subject for another time. And we can help them understand the Hebrew language. We can help them understand uh, the competing religions, the different religions that surrounded Israel in particular at the time and to can, can help them in understanding those religions and understanding the different worldviews around them, give them a frame of reference that helps them better understand the text. Here's just one great example that comes up. And you see this in the Psalms throughout, throughout the Psalms, this weird line that comes out and it's supposed to be about God's majesty, about God rebuking the waters. And now, if you read that simply from modern eyes, from modern perspective, you go, that's a really weird thing to say. Like, why is that a symbol of God's power and majesty or anything like that? But when you begin to understand that in ancient Near Eastern culture, for Semitic peoples in particular, water often had a, a symbolic representation of chaos because in the waters of chaos and many of the other neighboring uh, ancient Near Eastern religions, creation myths, there, there, are, um, there are chaotic wa- water monsters, water monsters such as, by the way, this is contained in the scriptures, waters, water monsters of chaos such as Leviathan and Rahab. Names that you'd actually find in the biblical text. So God's rebuking of the waters is really, really a powerful statement for a psalmist to sing about. Because the rebuking of the waters, when they hear that, the inspired communication that God is giving through a psalmist, let's say. And the psalmist is writing this inspired psalm for the people of Israel to sing, to hearken back and remember the goodness of God, his majesty and might. And it includes a line like he rebuked the waters. You hear that and you go, I don't get it. But with the information you're now equipped with, you hear that rebuking of the waters. And maybe you can understand what God's inspired communication was to that people first. And there we get closer to the location of the meaning and we go, Boy, those people, they heard it differently. And though they weren't speaking in English, 
And though they had different associations with the word chaos, waters, the waters for them were chaotic. It was the unknown. And so when God rebukes the chaos, that's a powerful act. That's a powerful act to um, give uh, worship to God about. And that has immense meaning for those peoples. As the Old Testament scholar, uh, John Walton, who's at Wheaton University and who I really, really recommend if you're wanting to do a sort of a deep dive into Genesis and trying to understand the book of Genesis better, uh, he's one of the best guys I could point you towards. John Walton, Wheaton University, uh, he's got several books. The first one in this series that they're called the Lost World series, and you know that they kind of call it that to, to sell books. But um, there's the Lost World of Genesis one, uh, the Lost World of Adam and Eve, and I think he just recently came out with the the Lost World of the Flood, exploring the the flood. But a great, great Old Testament theologian, um, John Walton, in his um, in his book, actually, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, does a introduction into Genesis. And um, I think he, he, he says this well, Biblical authority is tied inseparably to the author's intention. God vested his authority in a human author, so we must consider what the human author intended to communicate if we want to understand God's message. Two voices speak, but the human author is our doorway into the room of God's meaning and message. That means when we read Genesis, we are reading an ancient document and should begin by using only the assumptions that would be appropriate for the ancient world. We must understand how the ancient thought, how the ancients thought, and what ideas underlay their communication. Stepping into that world is necessary in order for us to get at the inspired meaning of the scriptures. So I want to take some time and we're focused particularly on Genesis because in in my experience growing up and the questions I've gotten from people, not just in the last week or so um, that I've kind of done some informal polling of the subject matter, people would be most interested in hearing in this podcast, but also in, in years of working through this stuff with students as well. One of the biggest problems people wrestle with is like how to make sense of, of Genesis in light of of science. So again, there's going to be multiple parts to this podcast, but I want to focus in in particular about how um, how we need to actually do sound biblical hermeneutics. And to do sound biblical hermeneutics, we need to find the inspired message and communication of God, not in our questions that we bring into the text, but in God's inspired intentions through human authors to human audiences with particular meanings in that context that we now as strange travelers entering into that world in humility need to step in and go, okay, I need to learn from you, not have me tell you what you said. So as I got into studying the scriptures and uh, and, and growing in, in in my skills in biblical hermeneutics, I realized I had been reading and treating Genesis in a really really poor way, and in particular Genesis one, two, and three, which is <clears throat> excuse me the the focus of of you know at least today's today's podcast. I'd been treating it really really poorly. 
I had gone in to the text, imposing my questions on the text, on Genesis 1, 2, and 3, which are actually two narratives, by the way. So we've got the the, the weak creation narrative, W-E-E-K, weak, the, the seven-day creation story in Genesis 1, and then we actually have a really what is considered by most scholars to be a, intended to be like a separate story here, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and the fall. And frequently, I found that uh, the more I studied the scriptures, the more I realized that the questions I had for the text, the questions I was bringing to those ancient authors wasn't anywhere in the ballpark of what those ancient authors were being inspired by God to communicate. And one practical example of this is the, the question about the age of the earth. And so when I would dive into Genesis 1 and, um, you know, I'd, be, I'd listen to Ken Ham and, you know, Dr. Carl Baugh in my middle school classes, uh, you know, we were being taught to in, that our, our questions for the text were inspired and that our reading of the text without having to enter into their world, the world of the ancient authors and the ancient audiences, that our world was the correct world and that we needed to tell them what they meant. And come to find out, ancient authors, the ancient biblical authors, and I say authors plural, but if we want to say singular author, uh, you know, it's traditionally ascribed to Moses in Genesis, um, is they're attempting to tell this story in Genesis 1. They're not dealing with a culture war between science and faith. Um, This is long, long before modern geology. It's long before the discovery of an even the discovery of a heliocentric universe. It's long before uh, Darwinian theory. And so we bring those sorts of questions in, and let's imagine that we were actually able to time travel back to the composition of that text. And whether you want to do a much earlier dating or, or, or maybe something in the, the range of the exilic period in Israel's exile, uh, which at the very least is probably when the um, this book ended up being circulated in popularity, at least in uh, in Israel, the book of Genesis, you go back to that time and we travel back and you start asking them uh, questions about uh, carbon dating and the age of the earth. And they're going to tell you, we don't, well, first of all, you won't even be able to talk together because <laughs> they don't speak English. And you don't probably uh, don't speak, uh, you know, ancient, ancient Hebrew. But uh, but if you had some sort of Star Trek-like universal uh, translator available, you'd be able to have a conversation together. And they would go, dude, I, I don't know what you're talking about. This is nowhere even on the map of what I was inspired to communicate to the audience. If one were to dive in to uh, that ancient culture and step into the world of the author and authors and audience of Genesis 1, what they would find is that so many of the questions, again, that we bring to the text are not relevant to the 
inspired communication, the inspired, the endowment of inspiration that God gave the biblical authors to communicate in his revelation. Our questions aren't anywhere on the map. And like many ways, I think this is just, it's not exclusive to Americans, but I think it really is reflective of an American attitude to go, I, when I go somewhere, I want them to speak my language and get my customs. And it just doesn't work like that. If you, if you want to do that, great, but you're going to misunderstand the culture that you're in if you don't actually try to learn the language, try to understand its culture and customs, and you simply try to impose yours on theirs, you are not going to learn from them. And, you know, a lot of times Americans maybe don't care about that. That, that might be a stereotype. Um, but if you're trying to get to the location of God's inspiration in his written word, then you need to humble yourself and step into that world, the world that gets us closer to the location of meaning, to where the locus, that's just another way of saying location, the locus of meaning is found. And it is not found, again, in our questions, but it's found in God's inspired intentions through the author's intentions to that audience. One of the things that we first want to confront when we start to read Genesis 1, that would be an imposition of our way of thinking upon ancient people's thinking is to impose upon them uh, the sort of scientific paradigms that we live in now. In particular, the way of thinking about the origins of something. Because of the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, and the predominance in our social sciences of physicalism or naturalism or materialism, whatever term you prefer, we are prone to think of uh, the origins of something as uh, describing its um, material beginnings, the processes by which something came to materially be. And that's that's how we think of origins and the origins of something. But that is not the perspective of the ancient Near Eastern people when they think of origin stories. They are not thinking of material origins. They're not thinking about scientific processes. That is foreign to them. That is asking that's going back in time and asking them questions about iPhones and about laptops and uh, about PlayStations and the NBA or, you know, the NFL. That's asking them things that aren't even on their radar. So that's one of the first, um, the first things that we need to acknowledge. We bring that question in, but it actually is very well likely not a question that's intended to be answered in Genesis 1. So that's going to leave you with a question. If you haven't explored this yet, that's going to leave you with a great follow-up question. Well, if that's not what is attempted to be answered in Genesis 1, what is the answer? What is even the question that the biblical author is attempting to answer in Genesis 1? 
And now that's a good question. Now we're getting, when we start to ask that question, we're starting to get to closer to the location of God's inspiration. And it's moved away from our questions. It's moved away from our individualism and making the Bible into some sort of modern mirror that we hold up. And um, it moves it closer to the locus of meaning, the location of inspiration. And that's what we're going to do in the next podcast. On the next episode of Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making, we're going to dive headlong into Genesis 1. And in particular, we're going to dive into the ancient world of the biblical author or authors and the biblical audience to which the book of Genesis was first comprised. And by stepping into their world and by walking along a path that brings us closer to God's intended communication, to the meaning of that text, we'll be able then to extract the meaning and applications that that ancient text has for us today in 2018. And in that process, I hope we'll be able to cancel out some of the wrong things that Christians have believed and have said about that text, especially as it relates to issues of science, of human origins, and the uh, diversity of life on planet Earth. So uh, really excited to keep going. The best way that you can keep going with me and with others that are following along in this series and with this podcast is by subscribing. So click that subscribe button on YouTube, on iTunes, or on Podbean, or even all of the above, and you will have these podcasts magically beamed to your device. And I can't even imagine if we were to go back and try to explain how all of that happens to the uh, ancient people who are reading Genesis 1 for the first time, what they would think about that. So uh, stay tuned next time, subscribe, and uh, leave your comments and feedback. We'd love to have dialogue with you about this subject matter. Take care.